Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is author Tom Jelton. Today we will discuss his new book, Bacardi and the Long Fight for Cuba, The Biography of a Cause. Tom covers intelligence and national security issues for NPR News, and he's a regular panelist on the PBS program Washington Week. From 1986 to 1990, he was NPR's Latin America correspondent in Mexico. And from 1990 to 1994, he was in Berlin as Central Europe correspondent. He covered the wars in Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Colombia, as well as the Gulf War of 1990 to 91, and the wars in Croatia and Bosnia. He based his first book, Sarajevo Daily, A City and Its Newspaper Under Siege, on his experiences while reporting from Sarajevo from 1992 to 1994. The book was praised by the New York Times as a chilling portrayal of a city's slow murder and selected by the American Library Association as a notable fiction, as a notable nonfiction book. Tom has also reported extensively from Cuba in recent years, visiting the island more than a dozen times. He has won numerous awards for his work, including an Overseas Press Club Award for Best Business for Economic Reporting in Radio or TV, an Overseas Press Club Lowell Thomas Award, a George Polk Award, and a Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Award. A graduate of the University of Minnesota, he began his professional career as a public school teacher and a freelance writer. Tom, welcome. Elaine, it's good to be on your program. This is a topic, of course, that I think is of interest to people around the world because Bacardi has become such a worldwide company. Um, I understand it is now worth billions of dollars, employs 6,000 people and 31 production facilities around the world. But you looked at the origins of the company as well as the family that has now owned it over seven generations. So I think that you're going to have some really interesting insights to share with us. Would you tell us what sparked this journey for you? Because this is really a journey that has taken a number of years and numerous trips and a lot of research. How did this all get started? Well, Elena, this is a book about the Bacardi story, but it's also a book about the Cuba story. And, in fact, uh, I use the Bacardi story sort of to explain the modern development of Cuba. I also use the Bacardi family's Cuba connection to explain something about what makes that, that family and their company unique in the business world. So it's really kind of got a dual focus. However, the truth is that I began uh, with the Cuba part uh, of this project. Uh, I started uh, visiting Cuba, as you suggested, um, in uh, actually about 1994 when I moved back to the United States. Uh, I was very interested in what was going on in Cuba, and like many people, especially those of us who had had firsthand experience in Eastern Europe after the collapse of the Soviet bloc and socialism there, I, I was uh, convinced that there was change on the horizon in Cuba as well, and I wanted to be in and see the whole thing unfold. And as I started to pay more attention to Cuba, I realized or concluded that uh, people didn't really understand the whole Cuba story, the history of Cuba's development, and I was looking for a way to kind of tell the Cuba story in a new and interesting way around you know, some characters and a narrative that people would follow. And I sort of stumbled on the Bacardi story. I, Like many people, I sort of assumed that Bacardi, I didn't realize Bacardi was even a Cuban company in its origins, or that the Bacardis were longtime Cuban patriots. I, like many people, thought that they were associated more with Puerto Rico, which is where most of their rum has been produced in the last, you know, um, 70 years, actually. Um, and then as I found, uh, as I learned more about the Bacardi story, I realized that this was a way for me to tell this Cuba story that I wanted to tell. So um, I actually came to the Bacardi story through this, through the, the Cuba connection, and that's how it started. Was it easy? No, it was not easy. It was not easy. It took me many years to, to do this book. I actually... Started, Elena, I started work on this back in 1999. Um, at the time, I was, of course, covering a lot of uh, Cuba stories, 
And there was this trademark dispute between Bacardi and Pernod Ricard over uh, the Havana Club rum trademark. And I covered that, uh, and it was in the process of covering that that I really learned about the Bacardis. And I decided then, back in 1999, that this was the story that I wanted to tell in some detail. And my book was published in September of 2008, so you can do the math. Uh, many years were invested uh, in this project. Uh, you ask, was it, was it difficult? Um, the Bacardi... Uh, Rum uh, Company is a privately owned company, which means they don't have to issue public reports. Uh, it's all private. It's all confidential. They generally, the Bacardis have generally had a, a policy uh, of not, uh, of being fairly secretive. I'll be quite frank about it. They don't like to talk about their internal operations. Uh, they keep them pretty quiet. And of course, you can imagine how difficult it was to deal with the authorities in Cuba. So, um, you know, I sort of had two strikes against me when I st when I started out, and that's one of the reasons it took me so many years to get this project finished. What was your biggest challenge, Tom? My biggest challenge was, uh, uh, you know, doing well. I live I live in in Washington D.C., and the Bacardi family is spread all over the world. Most of them live in South Florida, um, and uh, the biggest challenge I think was just. Uh, doing the interviews that I needed to do, both in Cuba and with the Bacardis. And it just took, uh, you know, if, if they had been all sort of in close proximity to where I was working, it would have been one thing. But, um, you know, it just took a long time. It was very hard to reach out to all the people whose stories I really needed to get in order to put together the whole narrative. Would you say that the end story is, is a positive story, as it seems, that it is... A vindication of sorts for um, part of that history, and certainly for the family. No, Elena, I would not say it's a positive story. I would say it's largely a tragedy. I think this is this is pretty much a sad story. Anyone who is familiar with uh, with what's going on in Cuba, you know, can't be very uh, positive uh, about the way things have turned out there over the last. Uh, 50 years, uh, and I think one of the tragic parts of it is that the Bacardis had a very uh, proud and, and noble heritage uh, in Cuba, and uh, they were basically forced out of the, of the country. I think it's one of the tragedies is that they did not have the opportunity to play the positive role in Cuba that they had played for the 100 years before and were willing to play. I think another um, sad part of the story is that, in many ways, the Bacardis in Cuba were the exception rather than the rule as far as business families are concerned. Unfortunately, there was not a great tradition in Cuba of sort of enlightened, uh, civic-minded uh, business families. Uh, so I think that, you know, if you sort of tally up the the sad and tragic parts of this story, they unfortunately outnumber the, um, the more positive aspects of it. Now, in terms of the family, as you were saying that they were enlightened and civic-minded, the result today, though, is that the company is a very successful company based in Hamilton, Bermuda, from the original company that was founded in um, Santiago de Cuba um, in the 1800s, right? Right, Elena, and this goes back to uh, what I said earlier, that there really are two, two stories here in, in, in one book. There's the, there's the sort of Cuba story and the Bacardi story, and indeed, the Bacardi story is a story of tremendous success. I mean, when they were expropriated, when they lost their properties in Cuba in 1960, they already had um, established uh, operations outside Cuba in Brazil and uh, Puerto Rico and Mexico, uh, and they were fortunate enough to be led by a, a brilliant uh, businessman, uh, Pepin Bosch, and they were able to sort of reconstruct and reorganize their operations outside Cuba and went on, and their period of greatest growth and commercial success came in the 1960s, in the first decade after they were pushed out of their homeland. Uh, and, of course, they have gone on to uh, unimagined success. In fact, the truth is, Elena, that... Some of the people in the Bacardi family, in the Bacardi business world, uh, actually credit Fidel Castro with their success. 
because uh, he really, his expropriation of their operation in Cuba forced them to be more ambitious and creative in their international uh, operations, and that is what made them so big and successful. They were forced in that direction. As I say, they already had started out there, but they were forced to internationalize their operations as a result of what happened to them in Cuba, and as a result, they became a hugely successful company. The largest, the Bacardi Rum was for many years the number one selling spirit in the whole world. And now, of course, they've expanded to more than 200 brands, including rum, but also a number of other alcoholic beverages, um, vodka and whiskey and cachaça, uh, tequila even, I noticed, is part of what the Bacardi Limited is selling today. Vermouth. And vermouth, thank you. How is it that they managed to overcome all of these challenges, including losing their company for all intents and purposes and having to fight for their name. What makes the Bacardi history and the Bacardi family so special? I think what makes it so special is the fact that it is to this day a family-owned company. This is really an extraordinary story in the history of family firms. Typically, according to business research, family firms rarely survive beyond the third or fourth generation. Uh, you know, the, the founder of a family company is often extremely committed to its survival and its prosperity, uh, but with each succeeding generation, sort of the commitment to the enterprise uh, diminishes a little bit, um, and the the inevitable disagreements about uh, business strategy and operations begin to divide the family and eventually they sell uh, uh, they sell shares they sell it becomes a public company and the family aspect is lost the Bacardi example is re- unique as as I say it is now in the seventh generation and it is still a hundred percent or almost a hundred percent family owned and I think it was this family uh, this sense of a family heritage that really kept the company on focus during those critical years. Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, you can look at it in two ways. In one way, the Cardi business sort of um, saved the, fa- the, the family. The, the family members, when, when they left Cuba, turned to the business for support and for jobs, for employment, for income, etc. But the business also turned to the family for support. And... Um, it was a very uh, harmonious, a very mutually uh, reinforcing relationship. So I think that, that the secret to the Bacardi success during that period, well, well two things. One, it was the, the brilliant management uh, uh, and strategizing of uh, Pepin Bosch, the chairman of the company, uh, but it was also the, the family spirit that underlay it. Now, uh, there were and, and have been some very deep disagreements within the family. The family is split uh, on some occasions. Uh, that was inevitable given the challenges that they were facing. But in in the early 90s, uh, they pretty much uh, healed all those internal family squabbles. And as I say, they remain to this day. Uh, it remains a family-owned company to this day. Let's go back to the beginning, if you would. You've obviously done a lot of research and, and spent a lot of time looking not just at what is going on with the company today, but how it all started. Would you share a little bit about that with us? Well, in uh, in uh, eastern Cuba, uh, the Bacardis come from Santiago de Cuba, which is the largest city on the eastern end of the island. It was, in fact, an early period in Cuban history. It was the, the biggest city in Cuba, the capital of Cuba. This was where the original Spanish conquistadors uh, first uh, established themselves. Uh, later, of course, Havana rose to prominence, but Santiago was always a very important city, and it was largely colonized um, by a couple of different uh, groups. One were the Catalans from the Catalonia region of Spain, who had a reputation for being um, merchants, for being very enterprising. Uh, a lot of Catalan immigrants came over to Santiago and, and started little uh, shops, um, 
sometimes just a few feet square, and, but they were very hardworking and, as I say, very enterprising. So there was that heritage. And then in addition to that, the Haiti, which was uh, just, uh, you know, not too far away in the Caribbean, had a revolution uh, in the last part of the 18th century, and uh, a lot of uh, former uh, French uh, colonists from Haiti came over to Santiago. Uh, and so you had this interesting mix of Catalan immigrants and, and freed slaves and, 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 and slaves um, and uh, French immigrants, French colonists from Haiti made this very exciting cosmopolitan city. And the Bacardis came, were part of the, the original Bacardis were from Catalonia, Don Facundo Bacardi, who came over with his brothers uh, and worked like many other Catalan immigrants as a little shopkeeper. He married a French woman whose uh, grandfather had come from, grandparents had come from Haiti. Uh, and so they sort of established themselves as a French Catalan family. And uh, Facundo Bacardi, as I say, got involved in the grocery business, uh, like hundreds and hundreds of other Catalan men. But he was very ambitious. He was very entrepreneurial. He had, from his earliest days in Cuba as a, as a teenager, he had this great aspiration and dream of becoming uh, a big businessman, and he was creative and tried different things. Uh, many of them failed. His grocery stores tended to fail. Um, like many, this Cuba in the middle of the 19th century was a difficult place. Uh, of course, it was ruled by Spain, and, and there was some there two uh, terrible wars. The civil wars were fought for independence in, in Spain. Um, Don Facundo Bacardi decided, as I say, he wanted to make money, and he came up with the idea of making rum. Uh, at that time, in the middle of the 19th century, Cuba was a huge sugar producer, but a lot of the molasses that was a byproduct of making sugar was being wasted. Uh, and it was not, uh, in some cases, it was actually being fed to pigs or even thrown in the river because it was just uh, the price for molasses on the international market wasn't worth enough to really even bother to process it. Uh, and Facundo Bacardi recognized that this was uh, this raw ingredient that was available in such abundance uh, could be used to make rum, and Cuba at that time did not really have a rum industry. Most of the big rum producers were in the Caribbean, and so he set out to make a new style of rum. And uh, Elena, his his genius was in 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 expanding the market for rum by producing a type of rum that was much lighter, much easier to drink, um, one that mixed with other beverages. Nobody else was making this kind of rum. Uh, at the time, and uh, he saw early on that this was the way to really expand the rum market and through a, uh, experiments with different uh, filtration techniques and aging techniques, he was able to come up, he and his, uh, his sons were able to come up with Bacardi light Cuban-style rum, which you know ultimately was uh, a big hit. But the whole first, I'd say, first 50 or 60 years of the Bacardi history, the Bacardi commercial history, were ones of constant setbacks, bankruptcies, near failures, discouragement, uh, you know, and it was only due to the persistence of Don Facundo, his dreams, his ambition, his hard work, and that of his sons, that this company was able to finally establish itself, but it, it took a long time. So that's the that's the sort of the early history of the company. Now, rum, as, as you said, back in the day, was not a very popular drink. How, was there any, are there any marketing insights that you can share with us? Many in our, of our listeners are, have an interest in marketing. How did they market the concept of this light drum, light rum? What? That's actually one of the most interesting stories, interesting aspects of the Bacardi story. Um, back in the in the time when Facundo Bacardi first started making rum, rum was uh, treated like a commodity, uh, you know. And by that I mean it was something that was really not differentiated according to the producer. I mean, you know, if you look at commodities today, whether they are grains, whether they are sugar or oil, or or other uh, products. You know, they are not differentiated by brand or producer. And rum was largely treated like a commodity. It was shipped in barrels. There was no identifying characteristics. You bought rum. You didn't really care where it came from because all rum was the same. 
but when Facundo Bacardi made his unique rum, he recognized, and this is very early on, he recognized the importance of, of branding his particular rum product. And so he came up with the idea of, of, of uh, putting a label on each bottle that, of rum that he produced, and he signed it. He personally signed the label on every bottle of rum that came out of his factory in Santiago. And later on, his sons uh, continued that tradition. This, you know, according to what I have learned, this was really uh, unheard of uh, at the time. For anyone, for a, for a merchant to understand understand the importance of branding uh and but the the bacardis did that and then when other uh rum producers saw how well bacardi was doing they uh, some of them actually tried to fake uh uh bacardi rum you know sell sell their rum as bacardi rum because they wanted to trade on the on the value that was already being attached to, to that rum and that once again the bacardis established a precedent of defending the brand uh, in a way that no one had thought for. They were very aggressive. Um, this, we're talking Cuba in the 19th century, in the 1800s, hiring lawyers every time that they found somebody who was fraudulently using uh, their brand, they would go after them. They would sue them. They would go after them in the courts, and they took that very seriously. And in fact, uh, the Bacardis have been known throughout their history for their a very aggressive defense of their trademark and, and brands. And then in 1919, when the company was first established as a joint stock company, uh, and they had to declare their assets, um, the, uh, by this time Don Facundo was dead, of course, but his sons Emilio and Facundo uh, and his son-in-law Enrique Schweig, uh, the husband of uh, Don Facundo's daughter Amalia, uh, were the original partners uh, in the company. And when they declared uh, the value of their enterprise, uh, they declared that two-thirds of the value of their enterprise was in the intangible assets, the what we now call intellectual property. Their estimate of the value of the Bacardi brand, the Bacardi logos, the, the famous bat icon. Um, so uh, they established very early on this tradition of recognizing the importance of brands and trademarking, and nobody else uh, in the spirits business at that point uh, were as modern as the Bacardis were in that. And I think that the, the sort of the history of the Bacardi attention to marketing and, and the importance of brands is one of the, as I say, one of the most fascinating aspects of their commercial history. How does that expand to today? Um, because we're looking at a market worldwide in which many people think that aged rums are the better rums and yet Bacardi has made its brand from the opposite products which are the lighter rums. Would you share some insights on that? Well, you know, it's the the spirits market is as you mentioned you mentioned earlier that Bacardi has diversified and it now owns a variety of brands and it's gotten out of the rum business this was actually dates from about the early, I think 1992 was the first acquisition, first venture outside uh, when they bought uh, uh, Martini Vermouth. Um, they recognized that the spirits industry, uh, in order to do well, you really needed to have a portfolio of brands. Uh, you needed to, to uh, this is partly due to the, at least in the United States, to the, to the unique nature of how uh, spirits uh, are are marketed and distributed in the United States, where you have, you know, this kind of three-tier, uh, three-tier system set up uh, in the Prohibition days, and and uh, Bacardi needed to be able to have a a variety of brands in its portfolio. So when distributors went to a a retail outlet, uh, you know, they would have an interest in in representing uh, all of the Cardi brands, uh, the various brands in their portfolio. And so, the importance of a diversified brand portfolio uh, became obvious. Um, and that one of the things that's included in that is to have a combination of premium spirits and more popular uh, spirits. And um, the Bacardi uh, co company does have some premium spirits. Grey Goose Vodka is a very expensive vodka, considered a premium brand. Um, and at the same time, Bacardi rum that, that uh, 
you know, that is much that they're much more famous for, is not considered a premium spirit. You're right that aged uh, aged rums uh, are considered to be a, more of a premium product, but they don't sell in the quantity that uh, white Bacardi rum sells in. And so you really need to, uh, you can't sort of put all your eggs in one basket uh, in the liquor business these days. You need to have a variety of products out there, and Bacardi rum. The traditional white rum continues to be one of the very top-selling spirits in the world. If I'm understanding correctly, then from the beginning, this was a very forward-thinking, branding and marketing-oriented operation because they converted a product that was not desirable, as you were saying, a lot of the byproduct and the sugar industry that was discarded, and they made it into something desirable. They used a light rum and made it become something that was marketable into something that eventually became a mass market product. And you talked earlier about the symbol. Back in the day, perhaps, branding and logos were not necessarily an integral part of everybody's business, and yet early on they developed the famous Bacardi bat. Would you tell us a little bit about that? There's a lot of uh, controversy about that bat and how it got started. Well, you know, there, it, it, you're interested in, in, in the marketing part of this story, Elena, and um, I think Bacardi is a great thing to focus on for that reason, because there are so many aspects to their to their marketing history. As I mentioned before, they had this idea that a brand was very important. It was very important to, dis- to differentiate Bacardi rum from the, its competitors. And one of the things they did, as I say, was to come up with this idea of a, a signed label. But many of their rum drinkers were illiterate. They couldn't read. And so how do you differentiate your product for people that uh, you know don't, don't read? And they came up with the idea that they needed to have a logo again. I think one of the earliest examples of a commercial logo, they put that they put the symbol of, of a bat on their bottle in order to uh, have a, a non-written uh, symbol of, of the brand. Now why did they choose the brat, the bat? Um, you know, uh, I think nowadays we look at this from a marketing perspective and, and think it's a little bit strange because bats don't exactly have an appealing kind of image. It's not really an appealing image, would you say? But in, in those days, uh, actually bats were seen with a lot more affection, particularly uh, in two areas, in Catalonia, in the region of Spain from which the Bacardis came, and among the Taino Indians in, in eastern Cuba. And with, with both those populations, bat were, bats were seen as a symbol of good fortune. Um, I, um, I found a, a, a letter in, in part of researching this book from uh, one of the early Bacardis explaining why they had chosen the bat as their symbol. And uh, uh, the, uh, this was the, actually the son-in-law of Emilio Bacardi, one of the, the, the son of the founder, uh, Don Facuna, and he wrote that uh, bats uh, in those days were seen as a, a symbol of good fortune because they exemplified the... Uh, ideal of brotherhood, because they lived and flew together. They also symbolized self-confidence, because they could fly in the dark without hitting anything. They stood for discretion, because they kept silence. And they represented faithfulness, because they always returned home. So that's a kind of a nice, uh, a nice, a nicer association uh, with the bat. Now, there's also a, a, a couple of prosaic uh, versions of the story of, of how the bat came to be their symbol. The, the sort of the most down-to-earth of all is that when the Bacardis first started selling rum, before they even put it in bottles, they used to sell it in bulk, and people would have to come to the factory with their own containers to buy rum. And as I say, uh, Facundo and his brothers had grocery stores, and they also sold the rum in their grocery stores. But this is, again, this is before they had bottles. And allegedly, uh, they uh, also sold olive oil in big old tins, cans, uh, that they got from their producer in, in Italy. And they, when, they, when, the, and when, they, when they sold the oil, they would keep the tins and recycle them, wash them out and recycle them, and sell, put, the, put their rum in those olive oil tins. And the Italian olive oil producer uh, had a bat on the side of the, of the tins, and so people would get to asking 
they would come to the grocery store and ask for the rum of the bat, el ron del murciélago. And, um, and that was, so the bat was associated uh, with their product in that way. And finally, it is said that when they first opened their, their distillery, there was a colony of fruit bats living in the rafters. And Don Facundo's wife, Amalia, suggested that, it, that for the reasons I said earlier, that the bat would be a good, a good symbol. So the association of the bat with Bacardi rum dates from the earliest days, and it sort of combines kind of quirky aspects of the company's history with the sort of the folklore uh, surrounding the bat in those, in those days. In spite of the not-so-positive image that modern-day people have of the bats and the controversy that has surrounded the symbol for years, they held steadfast to that symbol all these years. Did the family, when you met with them, did you discuss that? Did they share any insights on why they refused to change the symbol? No. Uh, you know, at this point, I'm going to tell you the truth, though. At this point, I know more about Bacardi history than I'd say many, if not most, of the Bacardi family members, uh, because I've spent a lot of time researching this history. They were forced out of Cuba. I was able to go back and, and you know, do digging in archives uh, in Cuba and talk to, to people there. Um, so, you know, when you're, when you're seven generations removed from the original generation, you sort of lose your sort of sense of, uh, of some of the details of, of your own family and, and corporate history. Uh, and I can tell you that uh, I've heard from dozens and dozens of Bacardi family members who appreciate uh, uh, this book, and they say that they're learning things about their own history that they never knew before. Now, that's really interesting. Tell us a little bit about that, Tom, if you would. What was that part of the process like? Because going to Cuba under the Castro regime and, and doing research um, must have had some challenges. What was that like? And, and did they block your way or did they facilitate it? Well, the um, I'm a reporter. Uh, and I cover the news, and Cuba has been an area of my uh, interest and expertise for several years, so I have been going to Cuba to cover the story there for National Public Radio for many years, and I think I was seen in Cuba, first of all, as a, a journalist who was there doing sort of daily uh, news stories, um, and I just sort of uh, kind of along the way learned what I could about the uh, about Bacardi history. So I I think from the Cuban authorities' point of view, I wasn't really there as a book author researching the Bacardis. I was there as a journalist who happened to be um, uh, interested in the, in the Bacardi story. Now, having said that, I did not keep it a secret that I was interested in this. Um, and, but I think the most interesting uh, part of this, Elena, is that the Bacardis are seen very differently in Havana and in Santiago. Now, one of the things that I get into in my book, uh, it's probably a, you know, of less interest to a marketing audience, is the political side of the story. When the Bacardis left Cuba, they uh, felt betrayed by Fidel Castro, and, and they became deeply involved as a family, as individuals, uh, in sort of the anti-Castro opposition movement, uh, and were very prominent in that for many years. As a result of that, in Havana, the Bacardis are seen as enemies of the Cuban Revolution. And, you know, it did not exactly open doors for me uh, in Havana when I said that I was working on a history of the Bacardis. On the other hand, in Santiago, to this day, in spite of the Bacardis' involvement in anti-Castro activity abroad, in Santiago, their hometown, they are still seen with great affection. Uh, Emilio Bacardi, the son of Facundo Bacardi, the founder, was the first Cuban mayor of Santiago. He is, to this day, seen as a real hero of the city. Uh, he was mayor of Santiago during the time that the United States military occupied Santiago, and he did many things for the benefit of the city. Uh, there is still, he founded a museum in Santiago uh, that exists to this day. It's still called the Bacardi Museum. I went out to the family plot in the Iphigenia Cemetery, uh, Santa Iphigenia Cemetery, and it is the, the, the uh, graves of Emilio Bacardi and, and other Bacardis are lovingly maintained. So, uh, you know, and you talk to people on the street in Santiago, and they 
you know, they still have a very positive association. The Bacardi Rum Company, based in Santiago, was seen as a good employer. It was seen as a good corporate citizen of Santiago. Uh, and so, you know, it's a, it was a very different experience for me, Elena, talking about or researching the Bacardi story in Santiago and in Havana. Did the, did the family oppose your participation from the perspective of that you were doing research in Cuba, um, or were they okay with that? Well, the, the family and the company did not have an official position uh, as far as uh, my book is concerned. This is, uh, I think we both sort of kept a little bit of distance uh, from each other. I think they, you know, in, in an official sense, they did not want to be seen as endorsing uh, this um, book or, or, you know, they didn't want it to be seen as an authorized, an authorized official version of Bacardi history, nor did I want that to be the case. So... Uh, our contacts throughout the period of my research were very much informal on an individual basis. Some Bacardi family members didn't want to have anything to do with me, didn't want to talk to me, didn't want to cooperate. Others, uh, others did. Uh, I think, um, it, and, and fortunately, uh, enough of them were very proud of their Cuban uh, heritage and wanted the story of their Cuban heritage told uh, that they did... Um, support me, me doing this and sat down with me and told me whatever they knew. Uh, they were also, of course, they didn't feel that they were able, most of them didn't feel that they were able to go back to Cuba and research their origins. So so they were um, curious about what I was learning back there and what I was able to, to find out. So there wasn't a single position with respect to, to my research. You know, it just depended on the individual family member. But I got, as I say, unfortunately, enough of them were interested in this and cooperated with me uh, that I was able, I think, in the end to get what I needed. Were there any discoveries? Was there something unexpected that as you were doing your research you found, wow, I didn't expect this, I didn't know this? Well, there was one thing that, um, that not exactly a secret, but I certainly found a lot more evidence of it than I think, uh, than I expected to find, and that is the very close and su- very strong support that the Bacardis gave to Fidel Castro and the and his revolutionary movement in the 1950s uh, as a as a family as a middle class or an upper class family the Bacardis were really in the forefront as far as their support for the Cuban revolution they individually gave thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to Fidel Castro and his and his associates uh, to buy weapons to support their revolutionary struggle. When Pepin Bosch, uh, the, the, the longtime chairman of the company, uh, who married the granddaughter of the founder, when he went to, when, when, excuse me, when Fidel Castro went to Washington on his first and only trip uh, in April 1959, he took Pepin Bosch with him. Uh, as a representative of the Cuban business class who supported him. Now, I, in doing my research, uh, I found a lot of documentary evidence uh, of the support that the Bacardis gave to Fidel Castro during uh, that time. The reason I say it's a, you know, it's a bit of a discovery is I think that from both sides, both from the side of Fidel and to an extent from the side of the Bacardis, this is not a story they necessarily wanted to have told. I think. Fidel Castro would be somewhat embarrassed now uh, for it to be known that he could not have come to power simply on the strength of his guerrilla movement, that he really depended on support from bourgeois, upper-class Cuban families like the Bacardis. I mean, it sort of makes him, the fact that he was so dependent on people like them makes him seem like a little bit less of a revolutionary, a little bit less like a guerrilla hero. And, of course, the, you know, the Bacardis and other... Uh, other Cuban uh, families who are now in exile, um, you know, aren't necessarily thrilled about um, the, about having it known how much they supported uh, Fidel Castro because he didn't exactly turn out to be the guy that they thought he was and that they were that they were telling other people he was. So I think that both sides sort of had an interest in suppressing this story. I uh, found a lot of, uh, as I say, documentary evidence about it, and I spend quite a bit of time in the book actually exploring that aspect of their story. 
Is that related to the title that you chose? Well, the title, um, Bacardi and the Long Fight for Cuba, the biography of a cause. Um, you know, the emphasis there is long fight. Uh, I mean, the, Cuba's, the cause of, of a free Cuba, which is the cause that I'm referring to, goes back to the middle of the 19th century. You know, it's not just something that, you know, Fidel Castro personally embodied. The, the fight for Cuba... The Cuban cause is a long fight that, that has gone through various transformations. It's manifested itself in many different ways. I say it's the biography of a cause because it has been like a, it's a dynamic, living, kind of organic thing that has evolved over the years. It's changed. I mean, the Cuban national cause meant one thing in the 1850s. It meant something else in the 1870s. It meant something else in the 1890s and in the early part of the 20th century. I mean, it's meant different things over the years. And the Bacardis have been, in one way or another, associated with this changing Cuban cause over the years. Uh, and this is the, uh, this is the, the history of, of their connection with their cause, that cause and their interpretation of what that meant uh, over the years. You know, one of the things, Elena, that we haven't talked about is how deeply... Uh, involved Emilio Bacardi, the son of Don Facundo, was in the uh, fight for Cuban independence from Spain in the 19th century. Why is that uh, notable? Let's say, was, wasn't everybody uh, enthusiastic about that? Wasn't everybody participating in that? No, by no means. Um, there was a large, well, first of all, the sort of the plantation class, the landowning class uh, in Cuba in the 19th century, much of the business class were sort of allied with Spain and didn't, uh, you know, oppose this uh, with independence fight. They, 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 in fact, many of them, you know, were proud of their Spanish origins and were sort of allied with, with Spain. So the Bacardis were somewhat unique even back then uh, in supporting the independence struggle. Um, and this was a very top priority. Uh, Emilio Bacardi, I think, arguably paid more attention to the uh, independence struggle than he did to the struggle to help his father uh, in the rum business. Now, his brother, Facundo Jr., was very involved in, in the rum business, but Emilio Bacardi, I think, in Cuba, is more known for his involvement in the independence fight uh, than, uh, than for his involvement in, in building the rum company. He was arrested twice. Uh, he was an underground conspirator in the struggle. Twice he was arrested and sent off to Spain in prison, spent four years in, in prison on one occasion, three years on another occasion. Uh, so uh, now this is, uh, this is a, an aspect, uh, I think this is where the sort of the Bacardi patriotism, Bacardi nationalism really first became evident. And that, of course, was a different scenario when we think of the, the island today. We're looking at a very different political situation. It was part of the Caribbean, and there were all sorts of political and business interests that were playing, um, perhaps that are very different from what we're looking at today in terms of the, the region and who controlled it and what the influences were, right? Uh Different in influences on what exactly? Well, in terms of there were um, slave and racial issues and concerns about who was the dominant power in the Caribbean at the time. And so this participation or this support of independence perhaps was very controversial, not just for Spain, but for others as well. Well, Cuba uh, was, you know, the most of Latin America... Uh, most Spain lost most of its colonies, all of its colonies in in Latin America, uh, before it lost Cuba. Uh, Cuba and Puerto Rico were the only two colonies uh, in, of, uh, that Spain was able to hold on to, and Cuba was the richest of all of Spain's colonies um, in the New World, and it was considered to be, you know, they said it was siempre fiel, um, always faithful. So Cuba was the one that, that they, Spain really counted on, um, and it, it was the biggest sugar producer in the world. So it was a very prosperous, produced a lot of wealth for Spain. And um, 
while other uh, countries in the other islands in the Caribbean sort of went their own way, uh, Spain uh, really held on ferociously to, to Cuba. Uh, and this was not, it was very difficult for Cuba to win its independence. As I say, other countries won their independence decades ahead of Cuba for a couple of reasons. One, because it was an island, um, and it's always easier to sort of control an island uh, because you don't, you can't get, you know, as a as a independence movement, you can't draw on support from from countries from your neighbors, uh, so you're very isolated. And two, the fact that um, Cuba did have such a large slave population uh, meant that a, a lot of I think white Cubans, and to an extent the United States as well, or sectors of the United States, feared that an independent Cuba would be essentially a black republic. And there was, we're talking here the 19th century, there were a lot of concerns. There's a lot of anxiety about the idea of a free, black-dominated republic uh, in the Caribbean. And so uh, I think that all of these factors sort of played together in uh, making the independent struggle in, in Cuba much more difficult and challenging than it had been in other Caribbean or Latin American countries. And so if I'm understanding correctly, throughout the history of the family, they were involved and supportive of their country from the political perspective as well as from their business because the business generated the wherewithal for them to provide support, backing to whichever party they believed was the best for the country. Well, that's right, um, except that uh, remember that uh, Bacardi, the Bacardi Rum Company was was teetering for the first 50 years. I mean, it's not like they had, they were a real, uh, they had a company that they had a lot of wealth that they could throw around. I mean, they were, they, I think they went through at least two, if not three bankruptcies during this period. They're barely able to, their rum production has slowed down to a trickle during the war. Um, they were not, the Bacardis were not a wealthy family by any means uh, in Cuba throughout the 19th century. It was really only into once the, so the dust settled and, and, the, and the rum business took off in the early part of the 20th century that they actually experienced wealth. Nevertheless, I think what is true is that they were seen, at least in eastern Cuba, they were seen as a leading industrial family, a very... Uh, they, they, they demonstrated a lot of civic leadership. As I say, Emilio Bacardi was um, the, not only was the mayor of, of, uh, of Santiago, he was the head of the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, his father, Don Facundo, was seen as a very respected businessman in Santiago. So, so in that sense, they lent their, their reputation uh, to, to this struggle, if not their wealth. Would you say that it would be accurate to highlight them as the most famous or the most distinguished Cubans? Would that be an accurate statement? Are there other families that shadow them? You know, as, as, as far as in the business world, uh, which is, I think, where most of your listeners orient themselves to, I think that the Bacardis are without parallel. There are clearly other business families uh, that have been prominent in Cuba and in South Florida. You have the Fanjuls, um, who, you know, have been very deeply involved in, uh, in, were deeply involved in Cuban history and in the, in the sugar business, and they're a, they're a you know, a very famous uh, family with uh, a lot of prestige. But I think the, the fame of Bacardi rum around the world is such that they uh, that they really as a family are probably the most famous uh, most famous family you know there's a um, if you've seen my my book Elena there's a, a picture of uh, a group of Bacardi salesmen uh, in the 1920s seated in front of a, um, uh, a sort of a poster and the motto on the poster is in Spanish it says el que a Cuba ha hecho famosa the one that has made Cuba famous, and this this was you know this was their this was their sort of their their motto during that time. They saw themselves as producing a product that had put Cuba on the map internationally, including, of course, and we haven't talked about it yet, the famous Coca-Cola drink. How did that get sure. started? <laughs> 
Uh, you talked about controversy. This is the most, one of the most controversial subjects of, of all, and I don't claim to know how it got started. All I could do in this book is to relate, uh, you know, a story that seems to make sense. Uh, the The idea is you've got two products here, the, the rum and coke. You've got a Cuban product and you've got an American product. And so I think that the one part of the story that we can pretty much assume is 100% accurate is that it dates from the time when U.S., when the United States occupied Cuba, uh, which is from 1898 to 1902. There were thousands and thousands of American soldiers on the island. Uh, they, their commissaries brought in Coca-Cola for them. And, of course, the big drink in Cuba, among Cubans, was Coke. I mean, excuse me, was rum. So, uh, inevitably, these two things got mixed. Now, how did they get, where did they get mixed the first time? Who had the idea of putting them together the first time? I don't think we'll ever know the, the story of that. But uh, the one that I tell in my book is that there is a bar, there was a bar in Havana where a bunch of American soldiers were drinking, and they were drinking Coca-Cola. And the bartender at one point suggested that he put some rum in their drink for them to spice it up a little bit. Uh, he did it, and, and they all liked it, and... Uh, asked for another round, uh, and the bartender offered a toast. He said, por Cuba Libre, to a free Cuba, uh, and they answered that, and, and that's how the rum and coke, the Cuba Libre, got its name, allegedly. Tom, what kind of a reaction have you seen, or, or have you, from the Hispanic community, from the Cuban exile community? Has there been an interest? Um, have people found the revelations, uh, some of them unexpected, to be of, of interest or controversial? What, what kinds of feedback have you gotten so far? Uh, well, I think that I've been very encouraged by it, and I think one of the uh, I've heard a lot from from Cuban exiles in particular, uh, you know, who I think appreciate the story of of Cuban exiles being told in a more holistic way. Uh, you know, I think so much of what is written about Cuban exiles, you know, is very partial in the sense that it sort of begins with their leaving Cuba in 1960 or 1961 and sort of focuses on them in exile and you know and I don't I don't think as much has been written that sort of shows the deep history of uh, of, 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 of the, you know Cuban exiles are considered to be uh, sort of more nationalistic uh, than other Latin um, exiles I think it's fair to say I mean it, you know, there's this idea that the Cuban-American community is kind of very passionate about their politics and about their opposition to Fidel Castro. And, you know, they certainly have a higher political profile, let's say, than Mexican-Americans or Puerto Ricans or, uh, you know, South American uh, exiles who have come to the United States. Uh, you know, the Cuban-Americans have sort of always been seen as being in a category by themselves with a particular, particularly passionate view of politics. And um, what I think that my book does is it sort of says, uh, explains where that passion came from. Why is it that Cuban-Americans, so many Cuban-Americans, feel so strongly uh, about their history and about their, their, their uh, you know, nationalist feelings? I think that, I think that what I've heard is, uh, is from them is an appreciation that somebody actually took the time to sort of go way back and told the whole story of how they came to feel the, 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 way they, the way they feel, not just beginning with Fidel Castro, but going back 100 years before. Was it your intention back in the 90s when you decided to embark on this project to address this audience? Did you mean to reach a, a broader audience? Were you keenly aware that, that a Hispanic audience might be interested in the topic? And what kind of a reaction did you expect? Well, I um, no. To, to tell you the truth, I didn't sort of deliberately target uh, a Hispanic audience. Uh, I uh, the Bacardi uh, name is famous throughout Latin America, uh, and it's famous in Spain, of course. And many Bacardis now live in Spain. Um, I'm still working very hard on getting a Spanish language version of this book because I think that um, it would have great appeal to a 
Hispanic audience who, um, you know, would be intrigued by the history of this remarkable family and the, you know their deep roots in, in and then the political side of the story and the commercial side of the story. Um, you know, I, I don't think there are enough sort of stories, uh, books written about famous Hispanic families, and this and the Bacardis certainly are in that category. I mean, they have to be one of the leading and most remarkable Hispanic families, you know, to emerge from the 20th century. Do you have plans for another book in the works? Uh, I have, I have, I want to do another book, but I can't say that I've got an idea yet. I've been lately sort of focused on international uh, economic reporting. Uh, the, the, you know, the global financial crisis um, has uh, really changed the world, I think, in many ways, and that's one of the things that I'm sort of focusing on now is, is, is how the world has been reshaped uh, economically by globalization and by the financial crisis. Uh, and, you know, I've also, as a result of this book, um, gotten very interested in international business. So um, maybe that will, maybe that will sort of come together in, a, in another book, but I, it hasn't, I don't have a focus yet. It took me, it took me a long time to, even after I decided I wanted to write a book about, generally about Cuba, it took me a long time to settle on what exactly I wanted to write about. So I, I make these decisions slowly and very deliberately, Elena. What advice would you share with all of this experience in reporting and as a book author of, of these very in-depth topics, what advice would you share to budding authors, to would-be authors, or authors who want to undertake a complex topic like that? What would you say to them? Well, I think, you know, the, um, what, I, what I bring to, to book writing is which I think is very valuable, is my my day-to-day experience as a radio reporter. And what I do on the radio in my news reporting is I tell stories. And I sort of my overall goal uh, as a journalist is to take uh, the most important, the most challenging, the most complicated stories, and I try to explain them to our audience in a way that makes them interesting, that makes them comprehensible. Uh, and as I say, you know, what it really comes down to, for me, journalism comes down to storytelling. And, you know, this is what I tried to do in my book about the Bosnian War. It's what I've tried to do in this book about Cuba. I've tried to take, you know, a subject and t- find the story, find the characters, find the narrative uh, that will make it, that will make people want to engage it and, and read it through to the end. You know, with some, there needs to be some suspense. Um, you know, I don't just believe in sort of just the facts, you know, presented in a kind of a disp- dispassionate chronological way. You know, I think that, uh, you know, what you really need to do as an author, as a writer, is to never forget that you, um, your reader does not owe anything to you. You have to hold the interest of your reader. You have to make, give them a reason to finish your book, uh, and you have to entertain them. And you have to amuse them, and you have to inspire them. Uh, you know, you really have to hold your hold their attention. Um, as I say, they don't owe anything to you, and the chances are that if you're not keep if you don't keep that in mind, you're going to lose their attention. Any thoughts for marketers who are trying to engage Latino audiences? Is there anything that stands out in terms of this particular book project? Well, you know, I um, I think that you just have to uh, you have to think. I'm not sort of a marketing expert. I think you have to think creatively. I think that you always. I think the one of the things that the Bacardi's uh, the Bacardi story illustrates is how good it is to expand your market. Um, you know, as I said, as we discussed earlier, at one time rum was drunk mostly by men. And uh, I think that the, you know, one of the things that the Bacardi's realized, or what Facundo himself realized, is that there was no reason to settle for a narrow market. There is no reason to just sort of limit yourself to a, a, a particular market. Why not broaden it? Why not widen your appeal to as many people as you could? And, you know, the, the great genius of, of, of the Bacardi's was that they came up with a rum that, um, that women wanted to drink. Uh, you know, before that, women didn't drink much rum. 
uh, and they came up with a rum that could be that that gave rise to the age of cocktails. Uh, rum was not drunk as part of a cocktail, and so. You know, the great success of Bacardi was in many ways a marketing success. It was, uh, it was recognizing that, that they did not need to be constrained by the previous assumptions of what their market was. They could create their own brand. They could create their own brand and create their own market by making it appealing to people who hadn't considered it before. Thank you, Tom, for joining us today from Washington, D.C. It's my pleasure, Elena. And to our audience, thank you for listening to author Tom Jelton, who discussed his new book, Bacardi and the Long Fight for Cuba, The Biography of a Cause, brought to you by Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicMPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicMPR.com. That's editor at HispanicMPR.com.